you'll turn in your Bibles with me to the book of Mark, we continue our study in the book of Mark, Mark chapter 7. Our scripture reading will come from verses 14 through 23. Mark chapter 7, verses 14 through 23. Mark chapter 7, verses 14 through 23. This passage comes on the heels of last week's message in which the Pharisees had come up from Jerusalem along with the scribes to accuse Jesus of allowing his disciples to eat with impure hands, that is, unwashed, for they were sticklers related to the tradition of the elders. Verse 14 of Mark chapter 7, the text of the Word of God reads, After he called the crowd to him again, he began saying to them, Listen to me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside the man which can defile him if it goes into him, but the things which proceed out of the man are what defile the man. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. When he had left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples questioned him about the parable. And he said to them, Are you so lacking in understanding also? Do you not understand that whatever goes into the man from outside cannot defile him? Because it does not go into his heart but into his stomach and is eliminated. Thus, he declared all foods clean. And he was saying, that which proceeds out of the man, that is what defiles the man. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed the evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting and wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these things proceed from within and defile the man. Let's bow together in a word of prayer before we begin our study. Father in heaven, we once again give you thanks for your precious word, which is a lamp unto our feet. So illumine our minds Grant to us understanding and open the eyes of our heart once again that we might see great and wonderful things from thy word. In Jesus' precious name, amen. These days, when you go to the grocery store, you have all sorts of options. You can buy organic, non-organic. You can buy grass-fed, non-grass-fed. You can Look at your chicken and buy free-range chicken. I don't know what the opposite is, cooped-up chicken. You can buy GMO, non-GMO, gluten-free, low-salt, no-salt, low-fat, non-fat, pulp, some pulp, no pulp, sugar-free, non-dairy, peanut-free, gluten-free, no MSG, no trans fats, low-carb, vegan, low-calorie, no fructose, high-fiber, and the list goes on and on and on. There are so many options these days. For some, it's a matter of life and death because of the seriousness of allergic reactions. For others, it's a matter of values. For others, it's just a matter of preference. But whatever the reason is for your 
food shopping choices and preferences. It seems these days people are much more careful about the foods that they eat. At least perhaps they're much more educated or informed than they were some 30, 40 years ago. I had never heard of some of these categories until recent years. I'm not even sure what some of them are. Back when I was growing up, it was, should we get snowballs or Twinkies or ding-dongs? And you have a choice. Home-cooked meals, or are we going to go out? Some of you, when it comes to food, are very informed as to the foods that you purchase. In fact, some, suffice it to say, we have much more information about the foods that we eat. We have dietitians, we have food scientists, we have calorie counters on the internet. There are websites that you can go to. You can find out a lot about the foods that you eat and the foods that you feed your family. But with all of the information that we have, with all of the healthy living standards and the nutritional information that is posted next to menus that we go out to restaurants, it does not and never will translate to being a more righteous or holy individual before God. You're never justified, made right before God. It is not something that you would improve your standing before God because you decide you're going to buy your latte with non-fat milk as opposed to other choices that you might have. In fact, for some, it actually is a detriment because for some, food is an idol. In fact, you probably think more about food than anything else. Great restaurants, great menus, and foods can become an idol. But it never improves our standing before God. Somebody can be in the best shape of their life, eat the best foods, and lose their own souls in the very end. Why? Because as Jesus points out within this particular passage, it's not what goes into the body that pleases God, it's what comes out of the heart that pleases the Lord. It's about what is internal, not what is external, that God is ultimately concerned about. It is an issue of the heart. It is an issue of the heart that causes one to be one that is spiritually toxic, spiritually unclean. That word means impure, to be defiled. It is one that is unholy in their heart in which emanates in the behaviors and the things that that person will say and do. Last week, we looked at the accusation by the Pharisees and the scribes against Jesus at the beginning of chapter 7. These scribes and Pharisees had come, and again, as I mentioned to you, Jesus is about a year away from his crucifixion. He's about two-thirds of the way through his ministry. He's up in Galilee. These scribes and Pharisees come all the way up from Jerusalem, some 60-plus miles, in order to bring accusation against Jesus, in order to discredit him before the people, because, as in Matthew chapter 12, it tells us that they wanted Jesus dead. This was not some sort of question that they had needed clarification about. No, their whole desire was to discredit Jesus. And as we looked at last week, they accused Jesus of letting his disciples eat with impure hands that is unwashed because, verse 3, they were violating the tradition of the elders. 
And last week we looked at the whole idea of what they had done. They had added to the Word of God because they had the Law of Moses, the first five books of the Bible. They had added to that the practical application commentary of that, which was called the Mishnah, which wasn't very clear. And so they added the Gemara, which was the commentary to the commentary to the Word of God. And all of the Mishnah and the Gemara put together is what we would call the Talmud, or what they call the Talmud. And so they had thousands upon thousands of pages of laws, additional laws, whether it's washing of hands or whether it's cleaning your pots and pans, whatever it was, they had all sorts of laws. They have lots and lots of laws by which it became unclear as to what the Word of God was. Now, just to give you an example of what some of those were, I was reading the Gambara yesterday, the commentary to the Mishnah. If, for example, it says, and they have all sorts of things. If you owned a rooster, if you owned a rooster and that rooster was flying from here to there and it knocked someone else's, you know, vessel, pot, or maybe lamp or whatever, and it broke, well, you had to pay full price for it. But it says, if you had that rooster that was flying across the room and the wind that the wings produced knocked that lamp off the shelf and it broke, you only had to pay for half of that vessel. The rabbis had all sorts of things such as that. They said in the, in the Talmud, cocks that were nibbling at a rope from which a water pail was suspended and severed the rope, broke the water pail, had to pay the whole, unquote. Or, for those of you who are dog lovers and pet owners, quote, a dog that snatched a cake from the coal on which it was baked and carried it to a barn and there consumed the cake and, parenthesis, with the burning coal stuck in the cake, set fire to the barn. Okay? Get the picture? Your dog wants a cake, he takes the cake, and he runs off to a barn, and there happens to be the coal that was on there, it's stuck on the bottom of the cake or whatever, and he eats the cake. What are you liable for? Because that coal falls out, burns down the barn. Well, you are liable to pay for the whole cake, but only half of the barn that was burned down, as further explained in the Gemara, unquote. The rabbis had thousands of these laws, tomes of scribal writings that superseded, they began to see this additional tradition of the fathers as superseding the word of God. As I told you last week, the Talmud says, the words of the scribe are more lovely than the words of the law. The Talmud says, my son, attend to the words of the scribes more than the words of the law. And the scribes were the ones that wrote the Mishnah as well as the Gemara. They wrote the Talmud, which was in addition to the word of God. And to them, it was more important to follow the tradition of the elders than it was to follow the law itself. And so when the rabbis taught, they would often quote, Rabbi so-and-so said this, Rabbi so-and-so said that. In fact, you can look at it today, and that's how it says, Rabbi so-and-so said this, and they would quote somebody in the Gemara, and they would quote somebody who would say this, and they would believe that even as we looked at last week, the washing of hands, if you were fastidious in that, you were a good Jew, you resided in the land, you were faithful, obedient, and you washed your hands, that would obtain for you eternal life. So the, the rabbis were always teaching by quoting some well-known scholar, some well-known rabbi, I should say. But when Jesus came, 
Mark chapter 1, verse 22 tells us the crowd's reaction to Jesus' teaching. It says, they were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Jesus was the very embodiment of the Word of God, and he was the one who taught as is. He didn't need to quote some scribe or what some scribe thought or what some rabbi thought. He taught as one having authority. So after the Pharisees had accused Jesus of violating the tradition of the elders over in verse 3 of chapter 7, of which there was a volume, a whole volume on hand washing, Jesus turns and points out their hypocrisy, their hypocrisy in the following passage because they held to the tradition of the elders over and against the word of God. And Jesus points out to them, look, you're not even following the word of God itself because you violate the commandment of God, honor your father and your mother, verse 10. By what? By declaring over their things when their parents had a need, they declared over their things Corban, meaning dedicated unto God, and therefore they were not obligated to help their mother or father who was in need. They could declare it as a person who said, this is dedicated unto God, mom and dad, I don't have to help you anymore. And he points out their hypocrisy face in their face value that they were violating the word of God in deference to their own traditions. And he calls them out for worshiping in vain by teaching as the commandment of God the traditions of men. And here in this today's passage, as we follow along, it flows right from the incident that happened last week, that Jesus continues to underscore and emphasize that God is concerned about what is on the inside, not that which is on the outside that defiles a person. It is what is internal, not that which is external that defiles. So we look at that in verse 14 through 16. He calls the crowd and he says to them, listen. Listen to me, all of you, you understand, there is nothing outside the man which can defile him if it goes into him, but the things which proceed out of the man are what defile him. Now, in the Jewish mind, this was a stunning reversal of what they had always been taught. The Jews were sticklers. They were sticklers about the tradition of the elders, and they were constantly, constantly concerned about what was external, the ceremonies the rituals, the practices, and they had piled upon one another, one upon another, covering up the entire purpose and the heart of the law. They had put together all of these writings of the scribes, thousands of pages, volumes and volumes of material of what the oral law was, the application of the oral law, and they had collected tomes of voluminous instructions as to how a Jew was to live a righteous life, such that it clouded over the Word of God. Now, how did this all begin? I mean, this wasn't some sort of overnight thing that happened. Well, it happened because, and it all began in the Mosaic Law. They were given the law. They were given the law particularly in the book of Leviticus. You have lots and lots of instructions in the book of Leviticus the third book of the Bible, about things that would be clean and things that would be unclean. 
whether it had to do with touching a dead body, whether you have a skin lesion, whether you had leprosy, whether you had some sort of bodily fluid, whether whatever it might be, some of those things, they were to give instruction as to what was clean and what was unclean. But in those things that were, that were of that type, none in and of themselves was ever declared to be sinful. It wasn't a sinful thing for you to have eczema. It wasn't a sinful thing if you had leprosy. It wasn't a sinful thing if you touched a dead body. You were, for example, if you were pregnant and you gave birth to a baby, you would be considered unclean for a period of time. It's not a sinful thing to have a child. But why are all those laws about being clean and unclean? Why were they given in the first place? Why were they given to Israel in the first place? Well, the law was given, and the distinction between clean and unclean was given to Israel as a picture, as a picture for them in their understanding of what it meant to be pure when you come before God. To be pure before God, it was a picture, it was a shadow. When Israel received the law of God, when Israel first received the law, they had come out of Egypt under hundreds of years of slavery. They were a new nation, a young nation. They had come out of years of slavery under the bondage of Egypt. They needed laws that would govern the people, the laws that would govern the relationships, laws and instructions that would be given to them in terms of worship. And these laws of clean and unclean were pictures of purity before God. They needed that. They were an infant nation. They were a fledgling nation. You might understand it as sort of when you, when, when you have a toddler and you buy them a, a book for the very first time. What, what kind of book do you buy them? You don't buy them a, a, a Bible commentary or an encyclopedia. You buy them a picture book. You buy them a picture book full of pictures, and they have big pages that are thick, and they can look at those pictures because they can't yet read. And as they get older and as they get more mature, you put different books in front of them. And the same way, being a fledgling nation, God decided he was going to give them these various laws that they might understand the difference between their own sinfulness in their heart and their purity before, if they were to come before God, this picture of being clean or unclean. And we know that from the book of Hebrews. Hebrews is a commentary on the book of Leviticus. That's why Hebrews 9, chapter 9, verses 9 and 10 says, accordingly, both gifts and sacrifices are offered which cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience since they relate only to food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until a time of reformation. All of those sacrifices and offerings and gifts can never make one perfect in conscience, that's what the scriptures say, until such time as a time of reformation. The time of reformation refers to the offering that Jesus would offer himself on the cross for our sins. Hebrews 10.1 says, For the law, since it has only a shadow, only a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very form of things can never, by the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year, make perfect those who draw near. 
The law was only a shadow, only a picture of the things to come, not the very form. All of those sacrifices, they could never make one justified before God. The law given to Israel was merely a shadow, was merely a picture of good things to come. God had always wanted, God had always wanted people to come before him with a pure heart. He was always concerned about the heart, not merely the external ceremonies. For Hebrews 10.22 says, Let us draw near with a sincere heart, in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. All of these from the book of Hebrews tells us that those things, the law was to point us to our real need, and that is a cleansed heart. It was a picture of things to come. The law was given as a shadow of the good things that were to come in Christ Jesus who had come that time of reformation. But the scribes, the Pharisees, they were stuck way back there with the ceremonial washings, with the external rituals, they were stuck looking at the picture books for toddlers, never moving beyond that. And what they continued to do was to add more of their own pictures to the book as if to improve it. And they added all of these pictures to that picture book in their toddler understanding that it became such that it would obscure the Word of God. No longer did they know what the Word of God was. In fact, they would, in fact, raise the teachings of the rabbis, the sayings of the rabbis, above the Word of God itself. It became the tradition of the elders. You'd think that what Jesus was telling them here would be plain as day. But it was such an astounding reversal of their understanding of what was important that Jesus had been teaching here in reversal of what they had understood the Jews had been communicating with them, that it confused even the disciples. That's what we see in verse 17. Because they come and they ask Jesus about this parable. When he left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples questioned him about the parable. He told the parable about that which goes in and that which comes out. And he said to them, Are you so lacking in understanding also? Do you not understand that whatever goes into the man from the outside cannot defile him because it does not go into his heart, but into his stomach and is eliminated? In their mind's eye, they had been indoctrinated so much so that what was important to them was what was external. When it came to foods, they believed that was the case as well. Even after Jesus had communicated this to them, it was all the way in Acts chapter 10 when Peter is praying and the sheet comes down in a vision, a trance, and the sheet comes down from heaven. And there are all sorts of clean and unclean animals in that sheet. And God commands him to eat. And Peter says, I, I've never eaten anything unclean. I've never eaten anything unclean in my life. So you, you know he's still trying to keep the Old Testament ways of only eating clean out even after this time. And God had to repeat it to him three, three times in that vision because he was still so stuck on keeping the old Mosaic commands and the commands and the traditions perhaps of the elders. And Mark writes, he declared all foods clean. That's what Jesus had done. It began to teach him. And there are still people who will teach those things today. Paul warns Timothy about that in 1 Timothy 4. He says, there will be men who will come. Young Timothy is a pastor of the church at Ephesus. And Paul writes to him in 1 Timothy 4, 3. 
Men who forbid marriage, they advocate abstaining from foods which God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with gratitude. For it is sanctified by means of the word of God and prayer. You know, empty ritualistic religion produces that type of legalistic mentality. Religion in which there are a set of rules that must one follow, as opposed to what is on the inside of what God is concerned about, about the spiritual condition of one's heart. That is the difference. Quoting theologian Mark Alley writes in Christianity Today, one can love religion like anything else in life, sports, science, stamp collecting. One can love it for its own sake without relation to God or the world of life. Religion fascinates, it's entertaining, it has everything that is sought after by a certain type of person, aesthetics, mystery of the sacred, a feeling of one's importance, an exclusive depth, etc. That kind of religion is not necessarily faith. See, religion is concerned about what is external, but all the things that we're to do that don't stem out of a transformed heart. God is concerned about the sinfulness of the human heart. And he was saying, verse 20, that which proceeds out of the man, that is what defiles the man. Sin comes from the heart, and that's what defiles a person. It's not what is external, it's what is internal, time and time again. Jesus addresses this. Jesus addresses this issue in the life of the Pharisees, in the lives of the people, time and time again. Matthew 23, for example, if you turn your Bibles to Matthew 23, two passages there in which he indicts this entire chapter. He indicts the hypocrisy of the scribes and the Pharisees. Matthew 23, verse 25 through 28. Matthew 23, verses 25 through 28. It says in verse 25, the Lord Jesus says, Woe, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside they are full of robbery and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and of the dish, so that the outside of it may become clean also. That word dish that is used there is often used of a platter that is serving delicacies of one who would be serving food. The picture is this, is that there is someone who's going to serve a beautiful meal, and they take out the fine china, the crystal glasses, the gold overlaid platters, the goblets, or whatever it might be, the real silverware, and they're going to serve a meal. But the food that is served on those platters and the drink that is served in those pitcher stinks. It is rotten, it is pungent, it is spoiled, it is putrid. Jesus says these Pharisees were just like that, trying to look good on the outside when inside the food that they were feeding people was garbage. The righteous would never do that. The righteous would want to serve good quality food that matched the beauty of the outside. You know, in recent days, there's been a lot in the news about um, our nation's uh, drug seizures, and there's been 
clips of our nation's uh, DEA agents and all of that who have been able to take a lot of uh, drugs off of these smugglers. I saw an article about the New York Police Department, New York Daily News. A number of years ago, the officers raided this drug den. They raided this drug den in Brooklyn, New York, in the neighborhood there. And, and the police found a crew, crew of five men, and they had uh, 23,000 pills of oxycodone, in which they had acquired it through taking physicians' prescription sheets. And it was worth about $460,000 at that time, street value. And what's interesting about the entire twist, and they were involved also in peddling heroin and cocaine, but what was interesting about the story was that the men... They routinely texted their customers that they were closed for the Sabbath. One text read, we are closing at 7.30 on the dot. We'll reopen Saturday, 8.15. So if you need anything, you have 45 minutes to get what you want. And the cops would label them only after sundown group. They were just like these scribes, these Pharisees trying to keep whatever fastidious law somehow for some reason. And yet, on the other hand, they were feeding people that which was poisonous to them, their own traditions, rather than the Word of God. The Pharisees, oh, they looked so good. They had the phylacteries. They had the boxes on their head. They had the prayer shawls. They had all of the trimmings, the tassels that would flow down. And on the outside, they looked good. But Jesus knew what was on the inside in Matthew 23, verse 27. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside they are full of dead men's bones and uncleanness. So you too outwardly appear righteous to men, but inwardly you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. What did that mean? What does that mean, this whitewashed tombs? You see, in the springtime, around mid-March or so, what the, Pharisees, what the Palestinian Jews would do in, near Jerusalem was that they would whitewash the, the tombs, the houses, the walls, those which were the sepulchers. This happened in the middle of March in order to make uh, these communities look good for the Passover pilgrims because there would be hundreds of thousands of pilgrims that would stream into Jerusalem. And what they wanted to do was they wanted to wash these sepulchers. They wanted to wash these uh, grave sites. And they would mark them because if any pilgrim came and they accidentally touched a tomb or they accidentally touched a grave, they would become unclean for a week. They wouldn't be able to celebrate the Passover. And they wanted out of consideration everyone to know what these tombs were, they were, and what they were. And so they would mark them, they would clean them, and the entire city, they would clean everything, and it would look so very sterling. I mean, the, the place would look clean, spiffed up, and you'd know what you would or weren't supposed to touch. But inside the grave was still the dead bones of whoever passed away. And Jesus uses that as a picture of the Pharisees and the scribes that on the outside they looked so good, yet on the inside they were nothing but dead men's bones. Just like these tombs, Jesus says. He condemns them for that. All of these sins came out of their lives. 
Jesus knew their hearts, full of hypocrisy, full of lawlessness, it says in verse 28 of Matthew 23. That's what it was. That's why he addresses those. Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. And in the Sermon on the Mount, this is what he tells. In one of the greatest sermons of all time, in Matthew chapter 5 through 7, he has a Sermon on the Mount in which he tells the people, beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be seen by them. Otherwise, you will have no reward in heaven. And then he goes on. He goes on in that whole list in Matthew chapter 5, Matthew chapter 6, and here's what he addresses. He addresses giving. Don't give so that you'll be seen by people and people will pat you on the back. Don't give in order to be applauded by men or whoever might see it. You give because it pleases God. Pray. Pray. Go into your inner room and pray. Don't go out in the street corner and be conscientious about who sees you and who doesn't. God is the one who sees. You pray and pray privately. Be more concerned about what God thinks. Fast. When you fast, don't fast like those Pharisees who will look like they're fasting, that they haven't eaten in a long time, so that they might appear more pious. Don't judge others when we have sin in our own lives. He addresses the issues of the heart, the heart's motivation, not for the looks on the outside of what people may see, but that which God would see, God sees in the heart. And he addresses the same thing in Matthew chapter 5. It's not just physically murdering someone, he tells them. You've heard it said, you know, do not murder. But he tells them what? That when you get angry with your brother, oh, that's just severe as murdering somebody on the outside. He addresses the issue of the heart. And it's not just physical adultery, he says. Oh, do not commit adultery. But you look with lust in your heart, you're committing adultery in your heart. He addresses time and time again the issues of the heart, and he reminds the people of their sin that comes from the heart in which God is concerned. And back to, back to Mark 7, for verse 21. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting, wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. You know, all these evils stem from within and defile or pollute, that's what that word means, pollute the man. You're not exonerated simply because you can sit and, and, and dream about how you might get back at somebody you're angry at and let your imagination flow. You're not exonerated if you're sitting there fantasizing or daydreaming about things that would be moral. God knows what is on the inside, and that pollutes your life from the inside out. Just like the Pharisees, the facade of holiness, and yet God knows the hidden hypocrisy. Because God desires true worship, true worship, as he says in verse 6, that comes from the heart, not just worship that comes from their lips. God desires true worship. As in Ezekiel 36, the Lord declares, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. What does God desire of us that we have cleansed hearts? I will cleanse you from all your filthiness, Ezekiel 36, and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. 
I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. You want to have a changed life? It is not, oh, if I do all of the right things. It is, if I have a changed heart, then I will have a changed life that stems from a motivation because one loves God. God is concerned about what is in the heart, not some sort of external ritual on the outside, as if somehow we're defiled by what is on the outside. Many years ago, I remember being in the city of Nashik in India, had the opportunity to minister there. Nashik is the city known in India as the city of temples. And it's a very, very dark city, one that is oppressed. And it is one of the four cities of the Kumela. And the Kumela is, is, is a, uh, a, a pilgrimage. It's a Hindu pilgrimage. And this is one of the four cities, and they take rotation times as to where the Kumela will be celebrated over the course of 12 years. There's a rotational system. And the Kumela is the largest gathering of people on the face of the earth. You can see it from outer space. There's so many people. Back in 2013, it was estimated there were 120 million people gathered over the period of two months. And in one day, there was an estimated, back in 2013, 30 million people gathered for the Kumbh Mela. And in this Hindu pilgrimage that happens, people will go and they will swarm into the Ganges River. You know what they'll do? They'll shave all of the hair off of their body. Because why? To cleanse themselves of all of the sin, to purify themselves. And even though that river itself is filthy because of so many people, tens of millions of people, they believe that bathing in the Ganges River, this external ritual and the shaving of the hair off of their body rids themselves of sin. It does nothing for their heart of which God sees. That is exactly what Jesus is talking about here. Defilement and purity come from the human heart. You know, every time on our news and in our nation, there's mass violence or morality, crime, some sort of wickedness. Ends up on the news all the time, and our world looks at it. And our world misdiagnoses the problem. And what they do is they look for a biological source. Or they look for a sociological source. They look at family history as a source. They look at psychological means as a source. Or medical reasons as to why evil occurs. But Jesus is extremely explicit here. Very explicit in this text. What defiles a person, what pollutes a person, doesn't come from our environment doesn't come from our family history. It comes from the human heart. And as we looked at in Ezekiel 18, in our text, even when we were looking at that in the high school ministry, we makes it clear, you are responsible for your sin. You are not a victim and cannot blame someone else for your sin. What defiles and what pollutes a person comes from within the sinful human heart. Verse 21. 
Jesus says, for from within, out of the heart of men. And he lists evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, coveting, slander, pride, foolishness. All of those things come from the heart of men. It is explicit. It is clear. And since that is the problem, the solution is not reforming society. The solution is not granting equal opportunity. The solution is not some sort of behavioral therapy for criminals. It is not behavioral therapy for murderers or deeds of wickedness. What they need is they need a new heart, as Ezekiel declares. What they need is a heart that is transformed by the power of God. What they need is the good news of Jesus Christ because it is Jesus who transforms the sinner. It is Jesus who transforms the serial killer. It is Jesus who transforms the human trafficker or whoever it is because it is the transforming power of God that saves people, that transforms the human heart and gives them a heart that is inclined then to worship God and do what is pleasing to God. Jesus wants to give everyone a new heart. And if you have never had your heart transformed, if your mind is filled with these thoughts of wickedness, these deeds of covetousness, thoughts of theft and murder, you have counseling, sometimes you find people like that, they have all of these urges, urges for great violence or great sins. God wants to take all of that away by transforming your heart into a heart of flesh, by filling that heart with the good things that the Holy Spirit produces as we studied even in Sunday school this morning. And if you've never had your heart transformed by the grace of God, then know that God desires to give you a new heart to give you a new life, to give you a new direction if you'll place your faith and your trust in Jesus who died for your sins and was rose, risen from the dead. He wants to give you a new heart if you'll just desire by the grace of God to turn from your sin, and God is the one who helps you to do so. And to confess your sin before Him and beg of Him to save your very soul and grant you eternal life, then God grants to that individual a transformed heart. Because it is out of that heart that is sinful come all of these sinful thoughts, these sinful inclinations. The heart of men is wicked above all else. Who can know it? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are grateful for your grace in our lives. It is by your grace, Lord, that people come to know you, and that you are the one who gives us a new heart, a new life, a new perspective, a new love. And that love that we have can only be experienced if we understand and know your love for us. So, Father, I pray that you would draw those who do not know you Draw them to yourself, and may they become children of God. May you save their souls, give them a new heart, that they might be saved and have the hope of eternal life. We pray, Father, for many here who may not know you, and we pray, Father, for those who struggle in their own sin. 
I pray, Father, that our own attention might not be to the external, outward traditions that we might hold to, but that, Father, we would be concerned about our delight and our love for you, and that out of that, Lord, might stem true fruit, fruit commensurate with a life of repentance. For we give you thanks, Lord, that because you have saved us, we can do by your grace that which is pleasing to you. In Jesus' name, amen.